Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. This week on Ask Dr. Dawn, some updates on Alzheimer's disease. The shift of research in Alzheimer's disease has quietly moved away from the 20-year, well, 25-year false trail, minimum 25 years, of chasing beta amyloid in mutated mice and moved to chasing tau protein, which is proving to be much more highly correlated and and much more easily dealt with. So very exciting stuff to coming up. We've been looking in the wrong place all along. How about that? Also, a student science project leads to a treatment for peripheral neuropathy, but you may have to plug in your socks every night, if uh, just like you plug in your cell phone to use it. And let's go with our first email. This one from Harry, who does who does not deign to tell us where he's from. Harry writes, "Shingles vaccine." Hi, Doctor Don. I don't think I ever had chicken pox, even though my two sisters had it when we were young, about six to ten years old. Should I get the shingles vaccine? And is there any test to see if I had chicken pox, even though I never had any symptoms when my sisters both had it? Thank you, Harry. Well, first of all, uh, Harry, chicken pox is super, 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 super contagious. So the chances are, if you were in the household with your sisters, you did get it, but get what we call a subclinical case. And uh, subclinical cases are interesting because you just don't break out or maybe you get one little pox and it's, you know, in your armpit or something and you don't even know you had it. And yet a subclinical case appears to confer as good immunity as not. So one question I would have for you, Harry, is do you have children who got chicken pox? And if you didn't get chicken pox, then you're probably immune. Most of the population from before the vaccines were invented is immune. Uh, blood tests are not accurate after 10 years on whether or not you, you had it. So the antibodies floating around in your bloodstream hang around for about 10 years your T cells are still immune, and they'll grab the virus should you get it, but you can't see them. And that's one of the things we're experiencing now with COVID is we see the antibody titers drop, and over time the antibody titers top, but the people still don't get a very severe case of COVID. They get a cold-like version of the disease. And this is, of course, speaking of people with intact immune systems and the vulnerable groups, as you might expect with chickenpox as well, are the people who don't have a good immune system in the first place. If you never had chickenpox, you are absolutely safe taking the shingles vaccine. It's not going to hurt you. You do need to know that it won't give you necessarily certain immunity against chickenpox. What it's designed to do is to keep the the virus from reactivating. Just like oral herpes or genital herpes for that matter, the chickenpox virus goes dormant in your nerve cells, just curls up and goes into hibernation, and it wakes up 5, 10, 50 years in the future and looks takes a look around and says, oh, nobody's watching, or the immune system is weak, or the immune system is distracted by this other illness, So this is my moment to reproduce, and off it goes. And it reproduces by dividing inside your nerve cell and then running down the nerve cell out to whatever bit of skin surface that particular nerve root innervates and breaking you out. And the the particles, it looks very much like a poison oak rash, uh, in terms of little blisters, about the same size, but these little blisters have chickenpox in them, and you can definitely give someone chickenpox from a case of the shingles. 
if an if a person has uh, is vulnerable or immunosuppressed, you can see that. I've also seen clusters of shingles, which I don't understand why that happens, but I have definitely just observed in family circles or friendship circles that one person gets shingles and then someone else in the circle will get a case of it. I have no understanding of why that occurs and I've never found anything in the medical literature to uh, explain it. And Maybe it's just a coincidence in my practice, but it's odd. Anyway, there's lots of phenomenon I don't understand that I've observed and some of that's probably just confirmation bias. Our next uh, email comes from Mardine. Mardine writes, and she's in Santa Cruz, she writes, sinus congestion at night. Hi, Dr. Don. I'm writing to you to ask a question for my husband. He has difficulty sleeping because his sinuses get congested and the pressure builds up until it wakes him. Often one side will be completely blocked. So he has to turn from side to side to help drain them or get up and try to blow his nose several times a night. He would like to figure out what's causing this and whether it is connected to diet or allergy or mold exposure or something else, but we don't know where to start. Can you offer suggestions for things he can try on his own? Uh, if you think it will require some tests to figure it out, where would you start? So let's take a look at those things that Mardine listed. Is it connected to diet, allergy, or mold exposure? Let's start with allergy. Absolutely, positively could be connected to allergies. You've got dust mites in your bedding. Uh, if he's just getting congested at night, you have to wonder about whether or not that's the issue. You can get uh, blood testing or skin testing for dust mite allergy, and that might be worth doing. Or you can just treat empirically. Because I have a bias towards a uh, natural approach, I will often start with something like a neti pot, which is a device that looks a little bit like a gravy uh, server, but has a long, narrow tube that goes in your nostril, and you rinse out your nostrils at bedtime. And what that does is remove pollen and other particles, cat hair or whatever else, cat dander more accurately, that might have gotten in. And it would also get rid of uh, mold if it was mold, you know, and you get all of those things washed out. And then he doesn't have as much nasal congestion. You're on the right track. It's something that's getting in there. Unfortunately, with dust mites in your bedding, it may not work because you're rinsing out the accumulated debris, but you're going to accumulate more. Nasochrome is an over-the-counter nasal spray that uh, contains a very benign agent, chromalin sodium. You can spray that in the nose, and it stabilizes the allergy cells, which are called MAST cells, so that they don't release histamine and you don't get the whole cycle of swelling. Nasochrome has to be taken for several days before it'll work. You take it every eight hours, and then you take a double dose at night, and it'll usually see you through the night without congestion. There are also nasal steroids, and that is, again, for allergies. Uh, those are available over-the-counter and only have to be used once a day, but again, take several days to kick in. And there's quercetin, which is an herb. Uh, well, actually, I guess it's a bioflavonoid that comes from apple skins, onion skins. It's very common in the diet. If you concentrate that and take, a say, 800 to 500 milligrams, uh, sorry, 800 to 1,000 milligrams of the stuff, it'll stabilize the mast cells and reduce allergy symptoms. So we covered allergy. What if he has vasomotor rhinitis? That, then he might also get a runny nose when he eats. It's very common in older men, and it's definitely aggravated by alcohol. So you can look for those factors to see whether that makes it seem like a more high probability here. That responds pretty well to Atrovent, which is uh, in the nasal form. This is also a drug used for uh, asthma. It's Ipratropium bromide. That's I-P-R-A-T-R-O-P-I-U-M, Ipratropium bromide. I'm not going to spell bromide. I think you can figure that one out. And anyway, Google will correct your misspellings if <laughs> in a browser, so no worries there. This does require a doctor's prescription. Most doctors will be happy to give it to you without an office visit. It's really not considered a big deal. Uh, you take uh, the stronger percentage of this. You spray it in your nose. It doesn't work quickly, maybe half an hour, but 
if you get a good benefit from that, that's kind of a blanket treatment. It works like a decongestant, but unlike over-the-counter decongestants, it doesn't keep you awake. Other simple things he could do would be posture, elevating the head of the bed. Uh, You can get these bed risers at home stores that are designed to lift the, the bed up to make it easier to get in and out of if your bed frame is low. But if you just put, they're about three and a half, four inches high. If you just put those under the front end of the bed, it tilts you a little bit. I have people with heartburn do this all the time. It's very effective for that. And just getting the nose a little higher tends to help with passive type congestion things. And this nasal swelling at night can definitely be just passive congestion from the fact that you spend most of your days upright. And after you lie down, uh, (laughs) your ankles stop swelling and your nose starts swelling, not to put too fine a point on it. And it doesn't take a lot, particularly if he has a deviated septum or one of these other pre-existing conditions for that posture change to cause congestion. Uh, He should be, if uh, you should basically think about sleep apnea as a possibility, because when you do have nasal congestion, it definitely can contribute to problems with sleep apnea. So I think I've pretty much covered that topic, and we'll move on to the science part of the program. I want to remind you of an old movie, which many of you have seen, called The Graduate. It had Dustin Hoffman as a very young man, and there's a and it's sort of an absurd send off of upper middle class life in the sixties. Uh, at one point in this movie, there's a pool party, and all of the parents and their friends and coworkers are getting drunk on cocktails in a in a very uh, swinging sixties kind of way, and the college-age son is just kind of bored and uncomfortable at this party, and someone buttonholes him as this big, as I recall, he's smoking a cigar, and he's this big business type, and he's, you know, kind of in his face, and he says, young man, the future is in plastics. Let me give you one word, plastics. And I've always found that scene very ironic, because, of course, the future was in plastic as well as possibly the the eco-death of the universe because plastics don't die. Uh, and maybe the future is in, ta-da, wastewater disease surveillance. Yes, we, got, we had the technology, but we didn't realize its value. COVID taught us its value, and now this is having what we like to call in biology an adaptive radiation It's being implemented to track all kinds of diseases, and I might add, just about anything that gets into your body comes out of your body via either your urine or your poop. It may come out in fragmented form, uh, but there's going to be some DNA in there that can be read. So surveillance of wastewater DNA is a is the future, young man, and we can find, or young woman, you can find a lot of career possibilities here. Let's talk about this one specific incident. Um, there was a there was a rapid spike in cases of a potentially deadly drug resistant virus in Nevada, and it's con- it's concerned public health officials all across the nation. But a team of researchers in southern Nevada have uh, a new study applying wastewater surveillance to help get on top of this emerging global public health threat. We're talking about one that I've discussed on the program before. I don't remember how long ago. Candida auris. Now, we're all uh, familiar with candida in terms of the one that causes thrush and some of the other candida-like yeast. But this auris, instead of being white, it's golden colored, hence the name. It's a fungus that can cause very serious infections. And if a patient is immunocompromised or has pre-existing conditions, if they're in a long-term healthcare setting, or they're getting invasive treatment with medical devices like a catheter or uh, a central intravenous line, it can be devastating if it gets into the bloodstream. So infection uh, prevention is very tricky with this fungus, because 
it can grow on both dry and moist surfaces. So we're talking furniture, door handles, clothing, and alas, medical equipment. And it's resistant to many commonly used surface disinfectants and evolution at work, all three types of antifungal medicines. More than one in three patients who get this, and it can affect the blood, the heart, or the brain, one in three die. That's a pretty nasty death rate. And what's more, Nevada last year experienced outbreaks across multiple healthcare facilities and logged the most cases in the U.S. of fungal infection. It was a 16-fold increase in just one year. So 24 cases in 2021 to 384 cases in 2022. And remember, 30% death rate, so we're talking over 100 deaths. This is very, very substantial outbreak. So this research team at Southern Nevada Water Authority uh, and the uh, University of uh, UN University of Nevada LV. I'm sorry, I don't know what LV is. Uh, probably a location, but anyway, a University uh, of Nevada campus uh, School of Public Health group analyzed ten weeks worth of wastewater samples from seven different sewer sheds. I love that we have watersheds. Did you know there were sewer sheds? That's my word for the day. Sewer shed. Hmm. I think it could describe several several media outlets, but we're not going to get nasty here. We're all sweetness and light on this program. This is not AM radio. So the scientists detected the genetic material of Candida auris in at least one untreated sewage, sewage sample from each uh, treatment plant, and about 80% of the untreated sewage samples in the study. And no fungus was detected in an untreated sewage sample from a wastewater treatment in Utah. Utah has had no cases of C. auris reported at this time. So uh, they didn't find it in the Las Vegas wash, which is where the the treated wastewater goes, and they didn't find it in Lake Mead. So the water, uh, which establishes, number one, that the the, the water source is safe, and number two that the treated wastewater is safe as well. So uh, we're, they're getting the bug dead, which is nice. And it shows that it creates an early warning uh, system. And this has been, this, this bug has come along very recently. The first case was reported in 2009. And unfortunately, most immunocompromised, uh, Uh, competent individuals will have it on their skin and not even show a reaction, so they won't know they're infected. Obviously, the importance of hand washing and hand sanitization or sanitizing is very critical. And I think as a culture, we got religion during COVID, and I'm leaving the hand sanitizer out. I'm really... I also have hand sanitizer, and then right next to that, I have water, and then right next to that, I have hand lotion, because I've been doing this now for uh, so obsessively, and you do have to protect your hands, but at the same time, you do have to protect others, so the uh, the fix is in. We have to do both, and wastewater surveillance, this is just the beginning, folks. We're going to be looking for all diseases that are contagious, Every uh, that... Uh, show up in outbreaks. We're going to have early warning on influenza, on COVID outbreaks. Uh, There's a science fiction story that I read, um, and in it, the the toilets are all smart toilets, and they do this wastewater analysis and let you know what disease that you're getting. And of course, this book was written before there were smartphones, but I can imagine... uh, I can imagine a, an all-connected future where I get a ping from, um, I get a message from my patient's toilet that they may be infected with whatever disease. And that's um, probably not as far-fetched as I would have thought 10 years ago. Okay, so the future is also in engineered probiotics. 
right? Probiotics turn out to be so important to our health and well-being, both because of the biological things that they produce metabolically that we can use as building blocks in food for parts of our gut. Short-chain fatty acids are made by the probiotics, bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. These short from fiber, which is why you should eat fiber. And this compound actually is anti-inflammatory and it is a food, in fact, a preferred food, back, uh, colon chow. It's what your colon cells love to eat, these short-chain fatty acids. So you improve your colon health and you reduce gut inflammation and potentially body inflammation. Turns out that you also improve your insulin resistance and raise your natural levels of uh, glucose-like peptide number one. That's the thing, by the way, that Ozempic is imitating uh, and Wygovi is imitating. It's basically pretending to be IGF-1. Well, if you just fix your gut and eat that fiber, you improve your insulin resistance without having to resort to injections that cost $1,000 a month. So just saying, you might want to try that first. In this case, researchers in China have found a hangover cure. That's got to be one of the holy grails using a genetically engineered probiotic. This paper was just published in a journal called Microbiology Spectrum, and in it, the researchers described their approach and their experiments on mice. Uh, in that, in those experiments, they established that their special probiotic reduced alcohol absorption from the gut, prolonged alcohol tolerance, and shortened the animal's recovery time after exposure to alcohol. I'm going to describe... How do I get mice drunk? Now, I know that is the question that's burning on your brains right after. Can I go and buy this stuff yet? Because I'm interested. Let me start to say it hasn't been validated that it's going to work in humans, but there's really no reason to expect that it won't because mouse physiology and human physiology are really, really close, including the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase, or LADH. This is how we metabolize alcohol. But just like you find in genetics, some variants of this ADH molecule are a little different and a little more effective. So research on this has found that there's one form called ADH1B, and this is found primarily in East Asian and Polynesian populations, and it's a hundred times more active than other variants. So it's ex um, this accelerates the breakdown of alcohol in the gut, but you can't give it directly. It's actually fairly dangerous. Don't if you kill a few mice, you definitely don't want to even pursue it for humans. So they thought, well, let's figure out if we can do it differently. So they focused on taking a bacteria called Lactobacillus, or excuse me, Lactococcus lactis. And this is one of the bacterium used in fermentation. And they, of course, cloned the, the human gene into the bacterial plasmid, into a plasmid, and then, which is just like one of those little key ring things that you get that has a hinge and a hook on, on one end. And you open it up, insert the DNA, close it up, drop it into the bacteria, and it finds its way into the bacterial genome. So anyway, the probiotic showed up in the, uh, the probiotic secreted the enzyme, so the they got it into the bacteria, and the bacteria was making it, and they encapsulated the probiotic to get it through the stomach acid, and then they tested it on three groups of five mice and exposed each to different levels of alcohol. Now, this, get, this is where it kind of gets fun. The untreated mice who uh, were given the alcohol showed drunkenness 20 minutes after exposure. And how do they know that mice were drunk? Well, when they placed them on their backs, the mice weren't able to get back on their feet. But uh, in the group that got the probiotic that expressed this human ADH1B, half the mice were able to get back up on their feet um, an hour after the alcohol exposure, and a quarter of them never actually lost the ability to get back up on their feet. And further tests showed that two hours after exposure, blood alcohol group levels in the control group continued to rise, 
while those in the probiotic-treated mice had already started to fall. They also found that the uh, treated mice had lower levels of lipids and triglycerides in their livers, suggesting that the probiotic would probably alleviate alcohol-related damage to that organ. So uh, I'm reminded of the second generation of Star Trek where they have a special, where they have the pub with uh, the funny alien running it. And in that pub, they have something called synthahol, which is alcohol that doesn't make you drunk. I'm wondering if maybe they had, uh, whether they purchased large quantities of this uh, Chinese probiotic, not yet on the market. I'm being, I'm, being whimsical and added it to their cocktails. However, I can definitely see uh, a cocktail for this having a real future. And continuing to give career advice to my science audience, the future is in wearables. So student engineers, um, students engineered socks for on-the-go neuropathy treatment. This wearable device could help diabetic patients deal with foot pain and balance issues. This was designed by a group at Rice University Engineering Department, and uh, they were in the Stimusoc team. One, two, three, four, five, five students designed a sock with a smart insole that can deliver both transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. You may be familiar with TENS units. They're often used for back pain. Looks like uh, it looks like a old-fashioned transistor radio with a few wires coming out of it attached to pads. I use these units all the time to stimulate my acupuncture needles when I'm doing pain management uh, using acupuncture, and it's quite effective. They also loaded in vibration therapy that blocks the pain signals to the brain and provides haptic feedback to help with balance issues. So you know how when you uh, when you your phone vibrates for you, so you know that something's happening. That's haptic feedback, and so you can signal that the nervous system with vibration, even if the nerves themselves are weak and aren't are kind of semi-deaf and aren't picking up the very subtle postural cues, you can kind of tell the foot where the weight is balanced. So imagine that you're starting to tip forward, then the front of your feet is going to buzz at a threshold that you can actually detect. Because numbness of the feet, those subtle signals that you're being sent by your uh, the nerves aren't sending any subtle signals anymore. So what you do is you take the weight of the body and make a not-so-subtle signal. So as the weight shifts forward, the front of the foot tingles. As the weight shifts back, the back of the foot tingles. And with a little training, you can use that to literally feel your way across the floor during a dark in a dark room without your eyes, which is going to be very helpful in people with any kind of neuropathy, but there's like 37 million people uh, in the United States with diabetes, and about half of them will develop this diabetic neuropathy. So I would say there's a market there for this particular kind of wearable, and probably funding available as soon as they, uh, to whoever has got the, the rights on this, because this is a good idea. Now, there are existing treatments and drugs, but none of them are portable, and none of them improve balance, which this device uh, attempts to do. So the idea is that the patient will wear the device for the whole day, and they can still wear them. They aren't going to look like they're wearing any kind of device. It's going to look like a sock. But they pick out, take out their smartphone, and let's suppose they're going to be sitting and watching a movie, and their feet will nor- ordinarily tingle and be distracting and hurt, they can essentially turn on the TENS unit, and the TENS unit will simply vibrate and block the pain, which is how these things work. And they also have located the sensors, the vibrators in the insole, the middle, and the back. So in the front, the middle and the back of the foot, so you can tell where things 
are hurting and send the vibration there, but you can also get it to vibrate and give you the balance input. And right now, the uh, they're calculating that the battery life on this thing is going to be able to do 120 mi- uh, minutes of TENS therapy per day and operate on standby and just, you know, when you're walking around the room, it will flick on because your phone will notice that you've changed position and signal your socks to turn on and give you the feedback of the position in your feet. So, you know, it's good to, it's always good to see the uh, capitalism anticipate future markets and Diabetes, man, that is a growth industry. So treatment of diabetes, you got it, a growth industry as well. Another growth industry, treatment of Alzheimer's, detection of Alzheimer's, because sad to say, that's a growing market as well. And one of the big things uh, that I mentioned at the top of the hour was the idea that tau protein is both the marker and also the therapeutic target in Alzheimer's disease. We've been chasing down the wrong tree, going after beta amyloid. Beta amyloid is probably more of a symptom of brain inflammation. And this tau protein, however, it becomes phosphorylated, and that's what makes it toxic to the nerves. And so blocking that biochemical change is very, very desirable. So this recent study published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia talks about a simple screening procedure with high predictive value. It's able to predict the onset of Alzheimer's 10 years in advance. And it's using a a type of sugar called a glycan. So in the study, it shows that blood levels of these glycons chain, glycans change early during the development of the disease. And the way this works, well, let's kind of walk through it. So this is uh, coming from the Karolinska Institute, and they've shown that there's a certain type of glycan structure in the blood. It's called bisected N-acetylglucosamine, and this can be used to predict the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And this group had pre- has been working on this for a while. They previously demonstrated a link between tau protein and glycon levels in people with Alzheimer's disease, but these were done on CSF. And these glycans are sugar molecules that you find on the surface of proteins, and they have a lot of... Uh, control over where the proteins go and what the proteins do. They're part of the controlling mechanism. And what the researchers found that is if the glycan level matches the tau level closely, that people are about twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's type dementia. And they were able to show that using a fairly simple statistical model that looks at blood glycan and tau levels, the risk gene ApoE4, and a memory test, they were able to predict Alzheimer's to a reliability of 80% a decade before symptoms such as memory loss. So these researchers were based on 233 participants in the Swedish National Study on Aging, and they took the the samples between 2001 and 2004 and then monitored them for seven years, and they checked up on them every three to six years, and now they've, they're analyzing the blood samples and from this and other groups that are in aging studies, and what they're finding is a very strong correlation and predictability b- between what is now early Alzheimer's in people in this population and whether or not they had equal levels of this tau protein and these glycans. The glycans, my guess, and it is a ge- educated guess, but it's still a guess, is that the glycans are responding to the tau protein and are probably adaptive. They're probably a helpful adaptation. They're part of the fight against abnormal tau protein. Now, continuing, and this is where the geek alert comes in, 
So if you need that background break, uh, you've got about two minutes while we do this stu- study. If you're into if you're into biochemistry, well, keep listening. MIT neuroscientists have found a way to reverse neurodegeneration and in Alzheimer's by interfering with an enzyme that's typically overactive in the brains of Alzheimer's patient. So it turns out that there is this enzyme called CDK5, and they, used, they found a peptide that blocked it and used it in the brains of uh, mice and showed that it dramatically reduced neurodegeneration and DNA damage in the brain. And they also got better at navigating tasks like a water uh, maze. So they, they saw decrease in inflammation and increase in function and a reversal of behavioral deficits. That's a very big deal. Now, the thing that we do know about humans is that they have uh, CDK5 overactivation. And uh, CDK5's role in Alzheimer's disease is uh, that it, it's uh, it's an enzyme, and it is a kinase, which means it puts phosphorus groups on molecules. It attaches a phosphorus group, ATP, right? That's three phosphates. That's what the T is, adenosine triphosphate. That's our body's source of energy. When you want energy, you pull off one of those phosphate groups, and now you have ADP, which doesn't give up energy nearly as well. You take that ADP back to the mitochondria and you recycle it using adenylate cyclase and you make new ATP. So CDK5 plays really important roles in regulating synaptic functioning. So if it's too active, it really creates a problem. Normally it, it's, in, it's activated by another protein. This is all activating things and deactivating things. That's how it all works in biochemistry. This is P35, and P35 binds to this CDK5, and the enzyme structure changes. It opens up an active site, and that allows it to phosphorylate things in its targets. Uh, however, in Alzheimer's, it you make more of you cleave PD35 and you make something called P25, which will still fit onto the CDK5, but it stays around longer, thus making the CDK5 more active. And it goes crazy; it becomes more active, and the it also changes that receptive site shape a little bit. So now the CDK5 can phosphorylate things it's not supposed to be phosphorylating, like tau protein. And it is the hyperphosphorylated tau that this sort of out-of-control CDK5 has gotten at that aggregates and tangles like like hair, uh, like like Rastafarian hair, or like the stuff that you dig out of your hairbrush if you have, you know, blonde surfer girl hair like I do. And those tangles are very similar to what the phosphorylated tau looks like under the microscope. And it gums off the works. It's hard for the nerve cells to get rid of this stuff. It clogs up the neurons. It interferes with functioning. And we're off to the races with neurodegenerative disease, not just Alzheimer's, but also Parkinson's disease and frontotemporal dementia, otherwise known as PICS disease. So there's some side effects that go, there's some drugs, of course, that go after P25, but they have terrible side effects and they have off-target effects. And so uh, researchers have been trying to use something that would bind it and they're finding some effects. So this peptide does not inhibit the normal CDK5 P35 complex. It doesn't affect the other kinases. It's pretty isolated, but it goes after this P25, which doesn't have any actual good purpose, its only purpose is to mess things up. So getting rid of that doesn't interfere with anything else or throw off the balance of anything else. So it's a interesting looking target and it's working in mice. The question is whether or not this is, can turn into something that could be safe in humans. And that has always been a big leap. So Stay tuned and we'll find out.
Well, we talked about running down the wrong track, but let's talk about something hiding in plain sight. Uh, There's a disease syndrome called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and there are a lot of different variations of this. But I think most of us, when we, as doctors, when we think of it, we think of people with the rubber man syndrome, where maybe they ended up in a circus act back in the in the days of the carnivals uh, that rotated around and had quote unquote freak shows. People with genetic variants, uh, unusual body habitus, congenital malformations, who were otherwise unemployable, could make a living standing on a platform and letting people pay money to watch them. We might, we could consider that barbaric. We could consider that a primitive social welfare program. I suppose it depends on what your perspective is, but the bottom line is this existed. And one of the conditions that would often end up here are people with this hypermobile, hyperflexible skin and also hyperflexible joints. So uh, you may know people with uh, hypermobility, people who are quote-unquote double-jointed and can do weird, uh, easily go into a splits or bend things backwards. Uh, those with this hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos have fragile connective tissue. Their collagen just isn't as strong. This can lead to, to chronic fatigue. It can lead to poor tooth enamel, dizziness, psychiatric disorders, uh, People with hypermobile EDS may also be at increased risk for endometriosis and migraines. It's kind of amazing the variety of things that would seemingly be unrelated to collagen that are affected in this conditions. Uh, one of them turns out to be treatable as a vitamin deficiency. And this is the hypermobile EDS. This is the 90% of the cases, but this is the one we don't have a genetic test for. And people often are treated individually for this, it turns out that individuals who have this condition have high levels of folic acid. And those people are very commonly, with their high levels of uh, folic acid in their bloodstream, it's like, well, what's going on? They're not taking supplements. Well, the problem is they're not activating and processing their folic acid. These people have a variation in the MTHFR gene. They aren't able to take folic acid from the diet and transfer it into methyl tetrahydrofolate, which is necessary for folate to work. This results in more elastic connective tissue, hypermodility, and all of those conditions, and it's treatable. I was not able to find in this article whether or not they checked for homocysteine, but homocysteine in the bloodstream is also commonly connected with flaws in the MTHFR genome. And this affects methylation, cancer risk, all sorts of other things here. Not everyone who has the MTHFR mutation has hypermobility. Not everyone who has hypermobility has this mutation. But if you've got both, then simply taking an FDA-approved over-the-counter product called methylated folate go to any health food store and you'll find dozens of bottles that contain it. Your dose is probably going to be about a thousand micrograms or one milligram, probably a good starting spot. But this is something I think doctors need to be aware of. They need to know to check folate levels. And if those folate levels are elevated in the bloodstream and the person's not on supplements, you should consider that they may not be making the methyl hydrofolate. And that unfortunately is not something that is easy to test because it's inside the cells, not floating around in the plasma, backed up in front of a a metabolic bottleneck. However, since I've been talking about MTHFR now for over 20 years, uh, it was lovely to see this article. And it's kind of like new use for old science, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Let's go to Potential new treatment for leaky gut using milk-derived extracellular vesicles. Well, you know, many traditional people from traditional cultures extol the virtues of raw milk. And many of my Latinx friends 
are very big on raw milk. I live in an area where uh, I pass by a, uh, let's just say it's a gorilla dairy. So uh, these are people who just have cows on their land, and they obviously are selling raw milk because I see people parked on the road bringing bottles over and walking away with full bottles with white stuff in them. So I'm pretty sure they're selling milk. And I'm not going to mention where they are. But milk-derived, these are these are natural nanoparticles, milk-derived extracellular vesicles. I'm going to call them MEVs for short because I'm going to stumble on that word every time I try to say it. These are, they... They restore gut barrier integrity, they prevent leakage of bacterial toxins into the bloodstream, and they alleviate many gut disorders like irritable gut, food sensitivity, and liver uh, disorders. And they're good for inflammatory bowel disease, and they're good for NASH, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, leaky gut syndrome, you can have chronic diarrhea, chronic constipation. It's only recently been creeping into the actual science world, but it's been a thing in alternative medicine for a very long time. Uh, this study was uh, done in Singapore, and uh, there, about 40% of people in Singapore have uh, leaky gut type irritable bowel syndromes, which is fascinating. That's a very, very high number. I suspect it's because of a high frequency of antibiotic use in childhood, but I'm just guessing. I don't know that for a fact. But it turns out that both human and Bovine milk contain lots of these MEVs, and they are extractable. So you can take you can take regular milk, and you can take out the uh, protein, and you can take out the lactose, and you can take out the fat. And what you're left with are concentrated MEVs. So. Uh, what what would be another thing that would uh, do that? Well, whey and drinking whey, which is the uncoagulated part of uh, milk, it's very it's going to be very high in these compounds. I I've been taking using a lot of bovine colostrum, but I think I'm going to probably start recommending raw milk because it's my suspicion that these particles are disrupted during homogenation. So. This might be more effective if you didn't heat it up. And while heating up doesn't destroy the nutritional value of milk, it may destroy the medicinal value, which may account for my cultural experiences dealing with uh, working with people from traditional cultures. So this study was very effective in showing that the MEVs worked in leaky gut. And they also gave us a nice uh, equivalency. They said a human adult might need to drink as much as one liter of milk a day to achieve the same therapeutic effects we got in our study. So I'm wondering, and this is speculation on my part, if maybe some raw milk for GI upset and during a period of time when things get disrupted wouldn't be a really good idea. And most, some Many of us would not be able to handle a quart of raw milk, but maybe a little dabble do ya as a preventative. Certainly worth thinking about if you're struggling with your gut. And while we're on the subject of struggling, have you ever had uh, difficulty getting your children to eat more fruits and vegetables? Uh, this study looked at what are the influence, what are the things that you can do uh, as a family to improve your children's willingness to eat raw vegetables. The study was done in Germany and just published in JAMA Network Open. And they were able to improve the, they were able to get children to eat uh, about 100 grams more fruits and vegetables. That's about one serving for of the five that are recommended for children. It's about as much as a small apple or a small bell pepper. Wow. Well, that sounds pretty good if, you're, if you've got one of these no-vegetable kids. In this study, they had uh, 50 families, 50 children, and uh, 50 sets of parents. 
The average age was eight years. Uh, the average age of the parents they throw in was 43, which is kind of old. But uh, this was a typical German dinner, and that included uh, fruits. It included cheese or cold cuts, crude, uh, sausage, etc., sliced bread, as well as fruits and vegetables. And what they had the parents do, two things. They had them cut the fruits and vegetables, pre-cut them into bite-sized pieces, and they had them spend another 10 minutes at the dinner table. And that extra 10 minutes, coming, bringing the mealtime up to about 30 minutes, that extra 10 minutes, the last 10 minutes, the kids ate the fruits and vegetables. They didn't eat more cold cuts or more bread, but they did eat a full serving of fruits and vegetables if you just hung out late longer at the table. I expect they got kind of bored and weren't hungry and they grazed, but they grazed on the stuff uh, that has good, interesting mouthfeel, that is to say fruits and vegetables. So that's a pretty doable thing. And maybe... Families on this side of the pond, as they say, might want to give it a shot. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.